Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which was rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. My guest today on The Enemies List is one of the most insightful and brilliant writers in our politics and culture today, and it's Tim Alberta. Tim has written some amazing work over the last few years about the end of the Trump era, and now he has written a book that I think is absolutely vital reading. It's It's been one of my favorite books of the last year or so, and it's called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in the Age of Extremism. And Tim, I, I just want to jump right into this because – you come from that world. You understand the the origin story of evangelical Christianity in, in America, and you've been a chronicler of how it has shifted both inside the movement and how it's changed our politics, especially in the Republican Party. Talk to us a little bit about the origin story of writing this book and help us understand, help the, help the audience understand where the evangelical movement is beyond the cliches. Yeah, Rick. I mean, look, I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. Um, we were part of the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. That was our denomination. And, you know, the church was really my home. You know, my mom was on the staff as, as well. And so I grew up literally inside the church. And, and it was really a huge part of my identity. And I think, you know, looking back on it now with the benefit of hindsight, I can identify more readily some of the things that were wrong both, you know, in my individual church, but even more so kind of in in the capital C church uh, at a macro scale. But that said, even as a even as a kid, like, I, I mean, there were just things that kind of maybe I was especially precocious. I don't know. But there were just things that kind of gnawed at me that that, you know, may, maybe these were the early seeds planted of a skeptical journalistic mind. I don't know. But just things that I saw and heard and observed that that seemed a little bit off, that seemed inconsistent with the mission uh, that I thought the uh, the church to have, and so it was a weird line for me to walk because, on the one hand, I, I've never wavered in my belief in Jesus, I've never had any sort of crisis of faith personally, but my confidence in in the church and in the institutions around evangelicalism were were certainly beginning to get pretty shaky as I, as I got older. And obviously that has only accelerated here in recent years. Right. I think I'm, I'm probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 years older than you are. But when I started in politics back in the eighties, in the late eighties, at least the evangelical movement had become one of the three legs of the stool of the Republican party. You had the strong foreign policy folks, you had the social conservative and evangelical folks, and you had the economic conservatives. And it seems that that there was still in the eighties and even into the into the early two thousands a kind of restraint inside even the movement to like not go too deep into the politics, not commit too much to the you know the overt 
explicit endorsement of a suite of ideas culturally that you were going to say these these all belong in the in, in our in the centerpiece of our politics. And I know it's it's convenient to sort of blame Trump and Trumpism for all of it, but was there an inflection point before Trump that you've been able to identify in thinking and researching this where the evangelical movement went into that area of, you know, we're going to be overtly political now? Because it, it, it a lot of churches now seem to have become, and you chronicle some of this in the book, they seem to have become overtly political in the in, in not only the the social conservative stuff, but anti-vax and all and global is all these sort of things that uh, it just, it, I'm curious if there's a moment you identified before, I mean, and maybe it's during the Reagan era, but, but before the Trump era that, that, that started this cascade. Let me answer that in a couple of different ways. Um, because I, so I think that on the one hand, you've had this sort of creeping, influence, and not just a creeping influence, but the, the slippery slope that you're describing there, Rick, I mean, that's that's been visible certainly since the mid to late 1970s with Falwell Sr. and the formation of the moral majority. And, you know, there's been like, you know, it's it's been a little bit of this, like, give them an inch, take a mile thing where, you know, it starts around a couple of core issues and then it expands and the next thing you know, I mean, it, it's like the military says with mission creep, right? Like one day you're, you're blowing up a munitions hut somewhere. And the next thing you know, you're waging war on the whole continent. And, and that is sort of what happened with evangelicalism in our politics. I do think that there, that there have been a couple of inflection points though. I mean, I, I look, I think that what's interesting is that at the end of the Reagan era, there was a bit of a receding dynamic with the evangelical movement's influence in Republican politics. Uh, the moral majority disbanded. You know, George H.W. Bush wasn't really a culture warrior type. And, and then so sort of early to mid-1990s even, there was this, I don't want to call it a ceasefire, but it was just a calmer time in, in terms of that at that intersection of, of evangelical Christianity and Republican politics. And then you have... Clinton and Lewinsky. And I think that that is definitely one inflection point where this, this sense of civilizational decay, which really dates back, you know, to at least the sixties, but, but, you know, because back then it's, you know, prayer taken out of the schools, it's abortion on demand, it's pornography, it's the sexual revolution, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, integration and, 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 uh, and, de- and desegregation efforts, and it's the IRS coming after Christian institutions that are punishing race-based discrimination. You have all of that sort of moral panic stuff that's been brewing for decades, and it's, you know, it's kind of ebbs and flows, but the Clinton thing, I think really, reignited that sense of moral panic that that you know how can we possibly allow for the president of the united states the leader of the free world who's supposed to be a a role model who's supposed to be a moral archetype for for our for our nation to look up to and the world to look up to how could he be you know engaging in these acts with this 21 year old intern right it was it was just beyond the pale and so you saw like, the, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, at that time, the, the largest denomination in the U.S., they issued this really famous, perhaps now infamous, uh, statement about uh, how moral wrongs sear the conscience of the nation and, and can't be tolerated and all of that. And, you know, Rick, it's interesting. Like, I was a young man as that was unfolding, and I can remember in my church 
uh, around my dinner table with my dad who like, we didn't really talk politics at home, but we talked about the Clinton thing because there was just this, uh, I think a conviction that was sincere on the part of a lot of these people, at least some of these people that morality and integrity and honesty really did matter a great deal in our politics. Uh, and, and so I think that was a huge inflection point um, because it sort of it, it set a standard that has now become a noose that all of these folks are hanging by a couple of decades later, right? You know, it, 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 there's no there's no there's no way out of this trap that they were setting for the Democrats that they themselves have sort of unwittingly walked into. The the idea though that some of these folks didn't see that coming, didn't see that trap coming, because. You know, we are all flawed and, and, you know, the, the, the idea of, of being held to the same standard, I guess, missed a lot of the, a lot of the, the mega pastors in that space. But, you know, in that era after Falwell and, you know, Swagger and all those guys, that's the sort of 80, almost, the almost sort of easily mocked versions of that thing. We've gone on to this sort of mega church era where there is a lot more showmanship and a lot more, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the bands and people hanging from wires and all the, the big show, the big, the, you know, the, the entertainment experience. Is that why Trump drew such a powerful, like, collection of those people, the, the ones that are the, that, that, like the Pastor Paula types who are, who are almost like entertainment figures as well as, as faith leaders, if, if you can say they're faith leaders. Yeah, well, right, and in some cases, uh, I would obviously dispute the uh, the claim there. Yeah, but, but you're on to something for sure. It's hard to quantify, but there's no doubt that you go to some of these churches. Like I, I write about uh, in one of the later chapters of the book about going to this church in Phoenix called Dream City, where they have this event there with Charlie Kirk called uh, Freedom Night in America, and it's like you know, it's like a, a double or triple bowl amphitheater Mm -hmm. with like rock band acoustics and strobe lights panning the crowd. And there's like, I don't know, probably seven or 8,000 people there. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a show. It's the hottest ticket in town. Right. And right. There's, there are, there are certainly elements of that, which then kind of lend themselves very easily to someone like Trump who never, I, I even observed this just to cut myself off briefly, Rick. I even observed this, like when I was at, uh, Robert Jeffress's church in Dallas, how, how precise he is on stage. Like he, he knows exactly where his mark is. He knows exactly where the cameras are. Um, the, the, the acoustics, the visuals, the, 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 uh, synchronizing of everything mm-hmm. on the screens, his Twitter handle shows up like yep. below his name on the screen. It's like, I mean, it is, it is really quite sophisticated. And I think that there are, there, there's definitely kind of a natural connection there to the showman style of Trump. And I think that some of these people, if they're being honest with you, would admit to that, that, that they became somewhat enamored of his star power and of his celebrity and of, of his ability to, to hold a crowd's attention like that. Because let's be honest, like I've been in a lot of churches, man, and not every pastor can hold a, you know, can hold the, atten- the, the attention of their, of their, of their congregation, of their audience. No, that is true. <laughs> so I definitely think that that is a piece of it. And, and then, you know, look, there's no uniform answer for explaining the other pieces of it. That That's what makes this such a, 
bewildering thing is that uh, you've got some people who are in it for the mm-hmm. money, some people who are in it for the cultural cachet, some people who have just been led astray badly sure. or who have just been sort of brainwashed into believing things that aren't true. And then you've got, you know, just your sort of straight up sociopaths who are attaching themselves to this to this personality, to this movement uh, and preying on people in the process and claiming that they believe in something t- that they know is not true, but they they recognize a sucker when they see one and they know that they have a product that they can sell. And, you know, and, and it's tragic to see a lot of people, I think, uh, sort of taken in by it. I try not to call people's faith into question. It's one of the things I, I don't like. I don't like to say X is a bad Christian. X is a fake. I, I don't like saying that because you know what? Nobody knows everybody's faith journey. You just, you just don't. But in some of these people, how is it? And I, this is something, you know, as a Southerner, I've observed, and I'm not an evangelical, like, you know, came out of the Catholic, messy Southern, whatever. A lot of evangelicals, I have not all, but many, are very quick to judge other people's morality. And how is it that they switched off with Trump? Because this is a guy, as you catalog, as, as we've all written about and catalog, this is a guy who is anathema, who is the dead opposite of everything that uh, about faith and humility and piety and, 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 and all of it. And it's such an obvious fake. How is it they switched their, either they're so opportunistic or they switched off some sort of moral detection system in their in their hearts and minds, because the idolatry of this man is astounding, given what we know of his character and his life. Well, Rick, I'll give you an answer that is not super satisfying, but it's the closest thing to the truth that I've been able to discern and discover in my own journeys here. I really do think that the timing here matters a great deal. I think you know, Donald Trump would not have been able in the mid to late 1890s or maybe even in the early aughts to come along and sort of seduce so many of these people the way that he has. But I think the post 9-11 era of our politics has been marked by a, a, a pervasive sense of fear, of pessimism, of distrust. And I think specific to the evangelical world, a, a belief that, you know, that, that, the culture and the country are slipping away from them so quickly and that if they don't do something drastic to reclaim it, that, that it's going to be gone forever and that they will be sort of resigned to permanent minority status at best, or they will be kind of persecuted into oblivion at worst. I mean, there is a real like Armageddon complex inside of the evangelical movement that, that has been festering for, for a Mm -hmm. couple of generations. Mm -hmm. But I think when you get to, you know, uh, the Obama presidency and, you know, the, the, the nation is reeling economically. You've got the first black president. You've got these sweeping demographic changes. And by the way, you're not sure if that black president is even an American because you've heard that he's right. Is he an American? Is he a Muslim? Yeah. You know, you've got, so you've got all this stuff, this uh, sort of ugly grievance and discontent and fear and anger all swirling. You know, and keep in mind, like there are real, I I think that beneath all of that stuff that is kind of overdone and manufactured, I do think that that there are real kernels of legitimate fear. If you are born in the 1950s, 1960s, and you grew up, 
in a very different culture. And suddenly you look around you, if you are a socially conservative person, there's no question that the world has changed dramatically in, in a short period of time. You know, uh, Obama runs for president in 08, opposed to same-sex marriage, and he leaves office in, you know, beginning of 2017, and it's the law of the land that it's legal everywhere. I mean, there, there's just no doubt that, that the country has become a different place and, and, a, and to these people, an unwelcoming place. And so, Rick, I think a lot of them had started to take on this, this mentality of like, okay, the enemy is at the gates. Like, where can we find the biggest, baddest, meanest, toughest guy to defend us? Right. And, and the, you know, obviously there are all sorts of theo- deep theological problems with that proposition, <laughs> but it, it, it is an attractive thing at a certain level. This idea that, well, I am bound by biblical etiquette to love my enemy and to pray for those who persecute me and to turn the other cheek. But he's not a Christian, this guy, so he is unbound from those norms. He's, he doesn't have to observe the rules of engagement that a good Christian does. So I think that there's like this mercenary relationship with Trump that a lot of these folks have embraced. And in, and in some ways, Rick, this explains why they don't stick with him in spite of his nasty behavior and his ugly, violent rhetoric. They stick with him because of those things, right? Like it's, it's not a, it's not a bug. It's a feature. And some of them don't want to admit to that necessarily, although lots of them do. And I kind of explore that in the book in my own reporting. But, but I think that that is the consistent through line that I've seen in that relationship. Say more about that, because the ones who do sort of admit that they're there for the transgression, they're there for the they're there for the the mercenary that they've hired or whatever. And it's been a whole lot of years since divinity class, but I know there's something niggling in the back of my head somewhere about you know that kind of relationship. Say more about like the the people who have justified it to you, like oh I know what he is. How how is it that they work that through in their heads? Because the desperation they claim to feel about losing the culture, this is still a country where white Christians are the majority and where they, they, they are not subjected to systematic discrimination in any way. Rick, the, the thing that is lost on a lot of folks in this conversation, and, and, I, and I, I, I don't mean to sound arrogant or anything when I say that, but I think that unless you spend a lot of time kind of immersed in some of these subcultures and having these conversations and getting people to open up to you, you would miss it. There is really a, a sense now permeating much of the evangelical world and even much of the just conservative world. It's to a lesser degree, but it's still very much real and present there that we are no longer in the midst of a of a battle between red versus blue, conservative versus progressive, Republican versus Democrat. No, no, no. We are now engaged in a zero-sum war between good and evil. And you can't negotiate with evil. It must be defeated, and it's binary. And so in that fight versus good and evil, you know, I imagine it's not dissimilar to how you know, FDR and some of the American military leadership sort of, you know, made peace with the fact that they were aligning themselves with Stalin in World War II, right? You, you, you think, well, um, I, I'm, I'm personally not a big fan of this guy killing millions of his own people, but can he help 
stave off a Nazi takeover of the entire Western hemisphere. Um, (laughs) If he can, if he can, then that would be cool. That would be great. Uh, And so like with embedded in this idea of desperate times call for desperate measures, I think that there is like this unspoken implicit clause that creates a permission structure for allying yourself with uh, enabling the behavior of justifying the the actions of someone to someone that you otherwise never would right because you know the the bible says that you shall know them by their fruit and it's just as an objective thing i'm not trying to be snarky i'm not trying to you know it's just like it is very difficult to look at donald trump and see the fruit of the spirit love sure. joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control you you don't see it and so at least you don't see it in any large quantity and so uh that becomes a problem for a lot of folks who i think recognize it rick i I really do i mean that that's what's been interesting to me is that you know yes there are people who claim to see it and they're full of it or who really you know think that they see it and they've just sort of been brainwashed but a lot of people I mean, even like Mike Huckabee, right? This guy was an ordained minister. Sure. And and he, a couple of months ago, goes on TV to endorse Trump. And basically, he he makes fun of his biblical illiteracy and says, like, this guy couldn't find John 3.16 if he had it bookmarked. But, you know, but they're coming for us and he can hold the line. And in fact you know, by not being a good and pious Christian, maybe he's just the, you know, street fighter we need to save us from oblivion. Like that is a, that is a really popular mindset on the, on the, on the, on the evangelical right. And it's something that I think is probably going to require a lot of uh, sustained deprogramming with good theology to fight what has become kind of a, 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 a theological cultural disease. You know, as you write this, the thing I loved about this is, yes, it's a it's a sweeping sort of magisterial look at this at the at the movement, but there was also a lot of personal revelation in this for you, a lot of personal impact on watching how this affected you very directly as you as you sort of read through or, or researched through and wrote this book. Tell us a little bit about about how you saw it up close and personal because you you wrote about it and it was a. In the book and excerpted in the Atlantic, it was it was incredibly moving. I wanted to hear your story on that. Well, it, you know, so when my dad died uh, in 2019, I went home for his funeral, and it just so happens that my first book, American Carnage, had just come out and was in the news. And because I'd been pretty critical of Trump in the book uh, and had spotlighted a lot of other Republicans on the record being critical of him, I was in the crosshairs of right wing media at that time. So when I go home for the funeral quite unexpectedly, I'm being confronted and, you know, accosted by some people at the church who are really upset that I would, you know, dare to levy these criticisms at Donald Trump. And, you know, it was, I I won't recite it all chapter and verse, but it was obviously a very ugly and unsettling moment for me as, as a, as a son and as a, as a citizen of this country, but also just as a Christian and, and, and seeing the ways in which the political extremes and the, and 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 the political identity had become so dominant inside the church and had had kind of 
even in a moment like that, a moment of that's really set aside for mourning and fellowship and brotherhood, to, that it that it could be infected with that sort of political zealotry and 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 so you know I set out not long after that started traveling around the country and visiting a lot of churches and a lot of pastors and trying to kind of uh, it, you know understand what was happening here and how things had gone so far off the rails and you know the interesting thing Rick is that knowing what I know now I'm not sure I would have done it because I mean man it was dark I, I, like I, there's you know, like I've been covering the Trump presidency, so I'm I'm used to you know d- death threats and 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 dark, you know, dark. Yeah. yeah, I'm used to the underbelly, the, the the nasty, seedy underbelly of 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 our politics and our culture. But there's something I think especially dark about seeing the corruption and the rot of the church and the institutions of, of evangelicalism in the way that I did. That being said, it's, this is going to sound really weird to anybody who's listening, who's, who's not a Christian, uh, I'm sure. But, you know, like my favorite author is C.S. Lewis, and he, and he writes about how you only know that a line is crooked because you've first seen what a straight line is. And so strangely, in my travels, as I'm documenting all of this, and as I'm sort of despairing over these crooked lines, I'm also constantly being reassured because I know what a straight line looks like, and I know who Jesus is, and I know that we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, that there has to be a conversation about this, there has to be an attempt to 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 address this and, and to and to fix what's gone wrong. And that's not going to be quick or easy or, or painless. I think it's probably going to be a really brutal process. Um, and you're seeing that now. I mean, that's part of what I'm writing about is just the brutality uh, inside these churches that are being torn apart over, over this tribal political identity. But, you know, it's ugly to see it up front. And, and, it's, and it's really hard to, uh, to see churches being fractured and relationships falling apart in this way. But I do, I do sense that, that it's probably necessary before any sort of healing can begin. It's probably, uh, that we probably have to bottom out here. And I don't know if we've bottomed out yet, man. I hope we have. Um, but my, my gut tells me we probably haven't. Yeah. I don't know that we've bottomed out quite yet. There may be, there may be a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a fall before we, uh, get off our knees and start uh, going back to the light here. So, well, folks, once again, uh, the book is The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory. I could talk to Tim for hours about this, but we got 30 minutes on this show, and so here we are. Um, I really recommend it, guys. It is literally one of the best and most enlightening books I've read in the last couple of years, and it, it really will map over a lot of the things that you're seeing playing out in our politics right now. And uh, Tim, once again, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Hey, my pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me. Hey, so today's enemies list is, it's obviously the all-time greatest champion of the enemies list, the, the, the pinnacle of the enemies list, the, the umber cherry atop the giant fecal mountain of enemies of this country and the world. It's you, Donald, once again. So yeah, listen, Trump, spent last night, uh, I'm recording this on Thursday the 25th, tweeting until almost four in the morning, tweeting, excuse me, he was on his dollar store low-end trailer park social media platform 
sorry, no disparagement of trailer parks. I'm from the South. We say that kind of thing. Truth Social. Going after E. Jean Carroll in the most hideous ways possible. Going after Nikki Haley in the most hideous ways possible. It was an astounding moment because he went even further. And he turned his like rage tweeting into something even bigger. And it became this attack on the donors to Nikki Haley, directly threatening them. If you're if you give to if you give to Nikki, he called her by a disparaging nickname, of course, you're off of MAGA. You're never becoming home. You're off the island, essentially. This wrapped into like one little ball, the misogyny and the racism and the shittiness and the hatred of women and the corruption and the fascism all into one ball. So Donald Trump today, my enemies list is as always the go-to. It's you. Thanks again for listening to the enemies list. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list. 